You may be seated. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These are the most profound opening words of any book ever written. This one sentence alone is worthy of a lifetime of contemplation. And this one verse has been criticized by millions. It's been tested by philosophers and scientists, mathematicians, and skeptics. And despite all of the criticism and all of the questioning and all of the testing, verse 1 has stood. And it has stood because it is true that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This morning, we're going to explore this one verse. And to help us think through this one verse, we're going to we're going to consider two questions. The first question is, why are we studying Genesis? As a church, it's going to take us a lot of time to work through the book of Genesis, and we're not even going to go, go the whole way. We're going to look at uh, chapters 1 through 22, but, it, but it's going to take us almost a year. So why are we studying the book of Genesis? And this, the second question is, what do we learn about God from verse 1? That's all we're going to look at, verse 1. What do we learn about God from verse 1? So let's start with the first question. Why are we studying Genesis? There are two primary reasons. First, Genesis provides the only foundation on which humanity can thrive. Genesis provides the only foundation on which humanity can thrive. Genesis was written by Moses roughly 3,500 years ago while Moses was wandering around with the rebellious people of God in the desert. In this ancient book, written in a different culture, different time period, written in a different language, is the theological foundation of all the Bible. Every doctrine in the Bible is built on the book of Genesis. In Genesis, we see the beginning of the universe, time, space, humanity, the beginning of marriage, sin, and the list goes on from there. It is in the book of Genesis that we see the nature of reality itself. What is really real is revealed to us in the book of Genesis. And so Genesis is the foundation of all of life and worship. And foundations matter. What you build on matters. In 2006, a company built a skyscraper in South Padre Island, and it was a huge investment. Multi-million dollar condos. It's, it was 31 floors of, uh, of condos for very rich people. Uh, if you want to go to uh, this, this picture, it's right by the ocean. This is while it was being built. And after they got to the top floor, they hadn't completed the building yet. Once they got to the top floor, constructing it, uh, they noticed something about the building. And so here's a picture. Tell me if you can see what's wrong with it. Um, the building was leaning. <laughs> so I'm not making this up. They, they called it the Leaning Tower of Padre. The Leaning Tower of Padre. So they stopped, obviously they stopped construction. And they realized that they had built the foundation incorrectly. The foundation could not hold the weight of the building, so they went back to the drawing board and they concluded two things. First, that the building would fall for sure. It was just a matter of time. The building was going to fall down. The second conclusion they came to is that it, it would be cheaper to demo the building and start over than it would be to fix it. So in 2009, this is what they did. I think we have a short clip here of what happened. I don't know if I'd want to be as What time you got, Sarah? Well, I know they do. Uh, okay. I wonder who that guy is standing way out of the oh, no, 
I don't know why they're cheering. That's $75 million down the drain. But you see that, and it's just in a moment the building is destroyed. And this is because foundations matter. What you build on matters. And Genesis gives humanity the only foundation on which humanity can flourish. This is it. There's nothing else you can build on. Anything else you try to build a society on, a society where human beings flourish, it will fall. It will collapse in on itself. And the reason Genesis gives us that foundation is because it records for us God's answers to the ultimate questions in life. Questions like, who is God? How did the universe get here? Who am I? What is a family? What is a man? What is a woman? What is sin? What is wrong with me? Why did it feel so good to watch Iowa State beat Iowa in football yesterday? (laughs) Maybe it was good triumphing over evil. I don't know, but it felt good. Or you think about some of these other questions like, why do I exist? Why do you exist? What's the purpose of your life? Is evil real? Is Satan real? What happens to you after you die? These are the unavoidable questions in life that you must answer. And right now, our culture is trying to build a new world on an imaginary foundation. A foundation sure to collapse in on itself. A foundation that cannot hold the weight of reality. And Genesis 1-1 teaches us that we must begin with God. Life does not make sense unless you begin with God. Your family, your job, your marriage, nothing makes any sense unless you, unless you begin with God. And when you begin with God, you are building on the rock. You are building on something that can stand. And so why are we studying Genesis? Well, it's because Genesis is the only foundation on which humanity can thrive. The second reason is that seeing God is the key to spiritual maturity. Seeing God is the key to spiritual maturity. God wants his church to be holy. God wants his church to be mature. He wants his church to be like his son, Jesus Christ. But there won't be godliness and maturity until we see God clearly. And in the book of Genesis, we're going to meet Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, and the list goes on from there. But God is the main character in Genesis because God is the main character of the Bible. It is the word of God that puts God himself on display. And we see this from the opening verse of the Bible. Consider this. I mean, just look what it says. In the beginning, God. Where do you begin? With God. God created the heavens and the earth. So before we get to the universe, before we get to time and space and humanity and sin and marriage and the fall and everything else, we see God. And this is significant because many people are wondering, how do I change? Most of us understand there's something wrong with us. I mean, don't you get this sense in your gut like all the time that I'm not what I ought to be? That I need to grow up? I need to change? I need to, I need to develop? But how do you do that? You know, willpower will take you a certain distance. It can take you somewhere. Trying hard can take you somewhere. But transformation comes when you behold the greatness and glory of God. You change as you see God, as your view of God gets bigger. And so I've been praying a lot for us as a church, asking God to help us mature. 
Helping us, God, I've been asking God, please help us to grow more and more like your son, Jesus. I've been asking God that we'd be more God-centered, that we would be filled with God-centered moms. Do you want to know what a powerful church looks like? It looks like a church that's filled with God-centered moms. Moms that are courageous, that have a backbone, that think deeply about God, the word of God, who worship God, and the privacy of their life when nobody's looking. They, they love God. I've been praying that God would make us a church filled with God-centered dads. That dads are not just moving through life, not paying attention to their families or life. They're just kind of going from one day to the next. Just praying that God, God, will you make us a church filled with God-centered, courageous dads. Men who love God and lay down their lives for their families. God-centered men and women, husbands and wives. I've even been praying that we'd be a church filled with God-centered teenagers. That would be a miracle, to have a church filled with God-centered teenagers. It's possible. I have three teenagers right now. I'm old. I'm getting old. It's incredible. But that would be a, a glory to God. But how do we mature? How is it that we mature? Well, we mature by seeing the face of God. And so in Genesis, we see the face of God. Question number two, what do we learn about God from verse one? What do we learn about God from verse one? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, what we learn about is the, is the doctrine of divine aseity. We learn about the aseity of God, the doctrine of divine aseity. Now, some of you, when you, when you heard the word aseity, you felt an irresistible urge to check out. Aseity, what does that even mean? I can't, I, that's, I can't even think about that, that's too hard to understand. So don't check out, brothers and sisters. Don't check out. The doctrine of divine aseity is marvelous. It is a wonderful truth about the character and nature of God. So what is divine aseity? What does it mean? First, it means, so just think for a moment. This is an attribute of God. What is God like? It means that God is self-existing, eternal, and necessary. That God is self-existing, eternal, and necessary. Aseity comes from the Latin phrase, ah say. It means by itself or in itself. One scholar said the aseity of God means God is the sole ultimate reality. God is the sole ultimate reality. That all of reality depends on him. Everything depends on him. So if Thanos snapped his fingers twice instead of once and all life in the universe was gone. So all life is gone in the universe. God remains. If the universe itself collapsed in on itself and somehow disappeared, God remains. Reality depends on him. Everything depends on him. He exists out of his, out of his own character. He can't not exist. You know, my first college class at Drake University was a history class. I think it was at uh, 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the morning on a Monday morning. And I was there early, ready for the class. I was a little nervous. And 9 o'clock comes around, no professor. 9.05 comes around, no professor. 9.10, no professor. 9.15, the professor walks in. 
And he walks in carrying a box of books. He had long white hair, a Hawaiian shirt, and his, his shirt was unbuttoned, so his white chest hair was just coming out of his shirt. It was unbelievable. But anyways, he walks in, he puts his books on his table, and he says, my name is Professor such and such, and I want you to know I'm a devoted atheist, whatever that means. First words out of his mouth. And if you are a Christian, you're going to have a difficult time in my class. So I want to give you an opportunity to leave now. Total silence in the classroom. Dead quiet. And a few people got up and they left. And I was a Christian at the time and I thought, I can't leave. I mean, this is going to be awesome. I mean, this is going to be so dramatic, so spicy. I don't know what's going to happen, but I got I to gotta stay for this. And so the professor spent the first two weeks explaining where the idea of God and religion came from. He said people got better at farming, so not everyone needed to farm. This left more people with more time on their hands, and they created God to justify not farming and getting paid. That's where religion comes from, obviously. Or another way to say it is that man created God. That was his central claim. People created God. Atheists, philosophers, tons of people have been saying this for hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years. John Burroughs, the famous American author, he said, Man is and always has been a maker of gods. It has been the most serious and significant occupation of his sojourn in the world. That man created the idea of God. Now, this is what's kind of interesting. In one sense, he's right. In one sense, he's right. It's incomplete. The thought is incomplete. But if you look at the, the history of the world, what human beings have been doing in all cultures is creating gods that mirror them. They've been creating gods in their image. And so it's true that people have created gods. But the doctrine of divine aseity says that there is one true God and he is self-existing. There's one true God and he is self-existing. He's not a figment of, of our imagination. He's not a creation of, uh, out of the minds of human beings. All the false gods are, but the one true God is self-existing. The aseity of God means God is the sole ultimate reality on which everything else depends. So he is self-existing. Divine aseity means that God is also eternal. He is eternal. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning... God in the beginning of what in the beginning of what well it is the beginning of all things before time before space before matter before humanity there was God I was thinking about the historical context of Genesis 1 1 and I was I was thinking about it I said there is no historical context to Genesis 1 1 because before this there was nothing there was nothing no historical context and if you go back in time, just let your mind go there. Just go back before the creation of the world, all the way into eternity. What is there? God. There's one reality. God. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. That what you would find in eternity past is the same God that we're worshiping here this morning. From eternity to eternity, you are God. So God is self-existing, he is eternal, and he is necessary. Or another way to say this, God cannot not exist. 
There was a time when I did not exist, you did not exist. And so in a very real sense, we are unnecessary for the universe to continue. But there was never a time when God did not exist. And there will never be a time when God exists. If God did not exist, nothing could exist because everything else in the universe exists contingently, dependent on him. He is the self-existing, eternal God. This is in his very character. In the beginning, God. And the more you think about the, the eternal nature of God himself, it's just overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. To think about an unchanging, eternal, necessary God. So divine aseity means God is self-existing, eternal, and necessary. Secondly, the aseity of God means God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. So where did everything come from? It came from God. He is the creator and he is the sustainer of everyone and everything. We're going to talk a lot more about this next week. But Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That is everything. Head to toe. From first to last. All things were created by him. The physical world and the spiritual world. John 1.3, all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And see, when God creates, he creates differently than the way we create. We are creative people. We like to create. But we take pre-existing matter and we change it into whatever we want to create. But God creates, the term is ex nihilo. Ex nihilo. Out of, he creates out of nothing. He does not rearrange matter. He calls into existence that which does not exist. So what we do is we take trees and we strip the trees down and we turn them into houses. We take pigs and we turn them into footballs and ribs and a bunch of other things. That's what we do. We take matter, rearrange it, and create something different. But God creates from the power of his word. He speaks and he creates. And his creation declares his glory, his power, his might, his wisdom. Here's just a few pictures of the universe God has created. If you want to put a picture up here, this is Mars. This is a real planet here, which is pretty incredible. If you want to go to the next picture here, this is Antarctica from space. This is where we live on Earth, not on Antarctica, but this is where, this is where we live. Uh, here's Jupiter, a real planet in our solar system. Here's a lightning storm on Jupiter. Here's a picture of the stars in the universe. This is like where we live. Where did this come from? Where did it come from? Nothing. That's what many people think. It just came into existence. But listen, you cannot, get, you cannot get existence out of non-existence. You can't get that. It is, it, it, is, it is not an intelligent, wise way to think that everything comes from nothing. You can't believe that. And so here's the universe. And this is just a tiny little glimpse of the universe. If you want to go to the next uh, picture here. Or, or go to the next picture here. This is a quokka. I don't know if you've heard of this before. It's the happiest animal on the planet. 
Uh, the next picture, uh, here, there it is. <laughs> they always want hugs, I guess, so they come in for hugs. Here's the next, the next picture. I mean, this is just one creature that God created. In the, the, the list of creatures, the diversity of what God has made, <laughs> Siri just talked to me. But the, 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 the diversity of what God has made is just overwhelming. Existence, the existence of the universe is an overwhelming reality. It is an overwhelming reality to contend with. You know, when I was younger, people, people said this, if there's a creation, there is a creator. And I thought, that's a pretty good argument. How do you get around that? And then I got educated and uh, what people said is, no, that's a dumb argument. And then I realized that they were not very smart because it's, a great, it's an irrefutable argument. Existence cannot come from non-existence. It cannot. So how do you get everything out of nothing? You can't. If there's truly nothing in eternity past, then nothing could exist. But we exist. So where did we come from? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earths. So not only is God the creator of everything, he is the sustainer. All things depend on him. Your very breath is dependent on a sovereign God who rules all things, sustains all things by his powerful word. Hebrews 1, the sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He sustains everything through the same powerful word that he used to, to create. And so, aseity, the aseity of God, means that God is the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything. Number three, divine aseity means that God is triune. He is triune. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God. The name of God in Genesis 1.1, in the book of Genesis, there's several names for God in the Old Testament, but in Genesis 1.1, we are introduced to God through the name Elohim. Elohim. Now, what does that mean? Well, think with me. This is, this is it's brilliant. The word of God is absolutely brilliant. El, E-L in Hebrew means God Almighty. So why, does it, why doesn't it just say, in the beginning, El created the heavens and the earth? It says Elohim. So what does Ohim do to El? Well, it intensifies El, God Almighty, Almighty, and it makes God plural. So you could translate Elohim gods. Gods. You say, wait a second. I thought there's one God. There's one God. So why don't they just, why doesn't it say in the beginning gods? Why doesn't it do that? Well, it doesn't do that because it says in the beginning God he created. You could translate it this way. In the beginning, God's, he created the heavens and the earth. So we see from the beginning that God is one and he is plural. He, singular, created. God's, he, singular, created. Deuteronomy 6.4, listen Israel, the Lord our Elohim, God. The Lord is one. He is one. So from the very beginning, we are introduced to one God in three persons. Not three gods, 
Not three gods, not one person, one God and three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. They are distinct persons and not interchangeable. You can't just flip around the distinct persons of the Trinity. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. They are distinct persons. One time I was at a prayer meeting and a young lady, she kept praying something like this, Holy Spirit, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Now, she, she was a sweetheart, very wonderful young lady, but when I heard that, my eye started to twitch a little bit. Because the Holy Spirit didn't die. The Spirit of God did not die. The Son died. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, died in our place for our sins. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not interchangeable. They are distinct persons. One God, three persons. Now here's the question you need to answer. What was this God doing in eternity? Think about that question. From eternity to eternity, you are God. What was he doing forever? Well, certainly there's a mystery in that. We, we have not been given exact details about every, the way God spent every day. That's not what happened. But what we know for sure is that God was in a relationship. God is triune. This is what Jesus says in John 17, 24. Father, this is before he go, Jesus goes to the cross. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so they will see my glory which you have given me. Now, listen to this. Because you loved me before the world's foundation. So before creation, the Father loved the Son. Which means for all of eternity, the Father was loving the Son. And you need to think deeply about this. You need to think, your life is shaped by what you think about God. Like how you parent your kids comes down to what you believe about God. What you do with your money comes down to what you believe about God. Your whole life flows from what you believe about God. So you need to think deeply about who he is. All the way back in eternity past, what do you find before creation? You find it an eternal love relationship within the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, if God was one God and one person, no Trinity, one God, one person, no Trinity, this means that God in his essence is not relational. This is the God of the Jews and the God of the Muslims. One God, one person, and in his essence for all of eternity past, no relationship. Because for all of eternity, God, one God, one person, was alone. So you could say that God is wise and powerful. He knows everything. And he's a creator. You could say that. But he would not be, in his essence, a father. He would not be relational in his essence. But if God is triune, think about this for a moment. If God is triune, then God is the eternal father. And the Son is the eternal Son of God, begotten of the Father and not made. Eternally the Son, the eternal Father, the eternal Son, the eternal Spirit. And there has, been, there has not been one moment when the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were not 
in a perfect, united, glorifying, satisfied, satisfying, loving relationship for all of eternity. So you just go back into eternity past. What do you find? You find the Father, the Son, the Spirit, one God, three persons in a perfect, united, glorifying, satisfying, love relationship. And what is so wild is that this God, this God, the triune God is introduced to us in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God, Elohim, almighty God, plural, he, singular, created the heavens and the earth. One God, three persons. And so God in his essence is love. In his essence, he is relationship. He is glorious. He is complete he is all-powerful. He is eternal. He is self-existing. He is holy. He's righteous. And if ultimate reality, so just do this thought experiment, just peel back the physical world, the created world, the dependent world. Peel it back. What do you have? You have a triune God. Who is, who is ultimate reality. And if ultimate reality is a triune God and perfect relationship, then what would eternal life be? What would eternal life be? John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the eternal Father, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So eternal life is measured. The reference point to eternal life is not time, it's relationship. It is endless relationship. So why did God create then? He did not create because he needed anything. Isn't that a glorious reality that God doesn't need you? It is glorious. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need your service. He doesn't need anything from you. Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since who is he? He himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. In his very nature, he gives gives. He gives life. What flows from God, the Godhead, is life and breath and all things. You can't even breathe apart from him. So he did not create us because he needed our worship or our service. So why did he create us? Well, he created everything to display his glory and to share his love. He created everything to display his glory and to share his love. In the creation of, in the creation, when God creates, in his creation, he reveals himself, his holiness, his greatness, his power, his wisdom, his everything. And through creation, creating man in his image, he invites people into this eternal relationship. And that's such good news because that's what we're created for. What are you created for? You have been created by God and for God. 
Not as if God needs something from you, but you have been invited into this triune, eternal relationship where you know God and you worship him and in him you find your life. Now, as we will see in Genesis 3, humanity falls. Adam sins and rebels. And this is why Jesus came. I don't want to jump to the end of the story, but the end of the story, or later in the story, I should say, Jesus comes into the world. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. This is speaking of the eternal Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. John 1.14, the word, this is the mystery of all mysteries, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became a man. We observed his glory, the glory of the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And he came into the world, and the world rejected him because the human heart rejects God. That's why we sin. Our heart, our heart posture is to rebel against our creator. And so we sin. We rebel against him. But look at, look at verse, look what verse 11 says. He, the word became flesh, the son of God came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of of man, but of God. And this is who we are in Christ. Most fundamentally, we are the children of God. Born again into this new life, into this new relationship that has come through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as we begin our, our series here, I just want to invite you to get real serious about knowing God. You can just ask yourself the question, are you serious about knowing him? Many of you, you, go, you, know, you know all the religious stuff to do. But we want to be radically God-centered people. And we need God's help. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the life you've given us through your son. We thank you, Father, that you are the eternal Father. And we thank you that you have made us your own children through your son, Jesus. And I, I pray for us just as a church, Lord. Help us, Lord, we wanna serve you. We, we wanna be abounding in the work of the Lord. But, but Father, help us to see the priority of knowing you and worshiping you. We don't want to just go through the motions, Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died in our place to make us sons of God, children of God. What a glory. Help us to pursue you by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.